All right. Galatians chapter 3. Tonight I want to consider something that I had cooking in my mind before I left. And it might be a little bit off track, but I'm going to call it the bridge. Unconditional to universal, question mark. Does the unconditional grace of God translate or form a bridge to necessarily universal? And I think that we have a variation on a much used but very important theme, that being Proverbs twenty nine eighteen, that without a vision, the people perish. And the people there are the people of God. The perishing is defined by not an eternity in hell, but by a continuity in an Adamic ontology and under an enslaved will in which the flesh, also known as the desire, the impulsive desire of the flesh takes control. People lose restraint. In the coming times, this vision of a universal saving savior will be imperative to people's survival, psychological survival, and spiritual survival. One day soon we might hear, if it hasn't already happened, about missiles being swatted out of the sky by our defense in America that have been aimed at us. And the more things seem to be lost in history the more it will be imperative for us to have a vision of an enthroned and elevated Savior. When it looks like all is lost, we'll find in a vision of our Savior, all is found. And that vision becomes clearer and clearer and clearer under adversity. Because as the scripture says, it has been given to us, granted to us, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. In Philippians one twenty nine, both of these are gifts. And I want to shore up some things tonight, and I think it's going to bridge a gap between what could have been a bone of contention, what really kind of is in some regards a bone of contention regarding believers' faith. And I tried to make it clear before I left that I have not kicked faith out of the equation, and by that I mean our human believing, but tried to place it in the right place. It is something elicited by God, and in doing so, I thought on the month away from you, where I I probably studied two, three, sometimes a little more than that, hours every day, I thought about that sacred cow God is a gentleman. He does not invade your free volition, and we knock that out of the ballpark because that's not true. God is not a gentleman as a man is a gentleman. His invasion into this realm, this world, this evil age, includes an invasion into the human will. He invades the enslaved will of man to free man's will. So contrary to violating his will, the the will of man, in that sense, he frees the will of man. And that's where the doctrine of rewards comes in. I'm trying to clear the decks before we get right started in this, where the doctrine of rewards comes in. The question has come from many quarters, and it's the basic question is, what about rewards? There is much to be said about rewards in the scripture. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15, Revelation chapters 2 and 3 refers to Rewards, Hebrews ten thirty five and 36. You have, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. But rather add patience to the mix. Be patient. So that after you've done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. There is reward. But it is only on the basis of a freed volition. Once your will is freed... And in the Holy Spirit, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is that freedom. There is the possibility of an obedience of faithfulness, which does, in fact, receive rewards from God. And so to the question immediately answered, just to get it off people's minds and off the away from the consciousness just for now. There is reward for believers for obedient 
activity under the power of the Holy Spirit. And there is also a harvest that is to be reaped from sowing to the Spirit. It's a harvest that is in connection with our eternal life, with the life of the coming age. And there is also a harvest of misery for those believers who, having their will freed, use their freedom as a base of operations for the flesh. And sowing to the flesh, there is a harvest of corruption, which comes to the fore as a burning fire, destroying much of the production of that believer in the evaluation day. That's also found in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15. So all that is still intact, but my main goal is to get the gospel straight. And the gospel is a matter of Christology more than soteriology. It's a matter of Christology more than soteriology. Paul's detractors in his own time opposed him. And Paul's detractors in the Reformation left it an open question just how much Jesus Christ is involved in our salvation by making the emphasis fall on human faith. God elicits faith. And after I say this, I want to pause for prayer. God elicits faith. Think of it in Proverbs twenty twenty seven, the human heart or the human spirit, which Paul refers to, and the only time he refers to it in the book of Galatians is Galatians six eighteen. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The human spirit is called the candle of the Lord. If it's the candle of the Lord, it's the Lord that lights the wick. And so the wick is lit when God elicits faith. God does not reward the human act of faith with the reward of justification. But God elicits faith, which the believer exercises as he's transferred into Christ, baptized by the spirit called the spirit of faith into Christ. We have the same spirit. I'm just going to go with the spirit now. I don't know if I'll ever pray, <laughs> but in, as Paul said in second Corinthians four thirteen, we have the same spirit of faith. Now that's from Psalm one sixteen. The, the Messiah is speaking, and he speaks about being in affliction, but having faith or being faithful. We have the same spirit of faith, in other words, as Jesus Christ did. We have a participation with Jesus Christ's faithfulness. Paul's missionary endeavor was directed toward bringing all the nations to the obedience of faith, which is the participation in Messiah's faithfulness now at the hearing of the true gospel and this is important too to prepare you for the work of the ministry you can tell someone the gospel facts and then tell them they must believe or you can tell them the gospel facts that include the faithfulness of Jesus Christ as the grounds of our justification and God will elicit faith in them there's that's two different missionary endeavors going on there I'll say it again you can tell people that Jesus died for their sins was buried and arose from the dead, was ascent, he ascended, was elevated and exalted and sits there forever until all his enemies are under his feet and then God becomes all in all, which is we're going to something, it's something we're going to hit pretty soon. And then tell the person that they must believe that. Now immediately that puts the burden on that person to believe it. And instead we can say, as this was my experience last month in a very dramatic way that I didn't even anticipate, Tell them the gospel and accentuate the faithfulness of Jesus Christ as that which has already wrought our salvation. And guess what happens? God elicits faith. He doesn't require it from someone. He elicits it. He ignites the wick of the candle of the Lord, which is the human spirit. The origin of faith is God. The origin of our faith is divine. Our faith is a participation in Jesus Christ's fidelity. I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. And it, yet it is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live within the orb, the sphere, the realm of the faithfulness of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. 
I do not frustrate the grace of God because if justification comes through works of the law, Paul said, then Christ died for no reason. So what I want to say is God elicits faith. You can say ignites it. Not by coercive force, but by the power of infinite persuasiveness. A kind of irresistible grace. If we were to use Calvin's tulip, you probably are aware of the tulip. I'm not sure how accurate it is in summarizing Calvin and his doctrine. There is the doctrine of total depravity, which I agree with, man's radical incapacity. There is the doctrine of unconditional grace, which I agree with. There is the doctrine of of limited atonement, which I do not agree with. There's the doctrine of irresistible grace, which I tend to agree with in the sense that God is not a gentleman like a man is a gentleman. God is a gentleman like man's maker. And God invades, in invading the evil age, he invades the sphere of the enslaved will of man. He violates, if you want to say it, the enslavement of man's will in order to free man's will. The only rewardable production in the spiritual life is that which is done through a totally freed or liberated will under the power of the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, the P is the perseverance of the saints. The elect will prove themselves uh, unconditional election, I think, is what the U is, if I remember correctly. And that is up to then, without the limited atonement, there's a pretty good system going on, a four-point Calvinistic system. But there's also a deadly, fatal error in classic Calvinism. Calvin, or those students of Calvin, believed that it is a matter of unconditional election. It is a matter of irresistible grace, but only some are the recipients of it. That's Calvinism, and that's Calvinism's flaw. So if it's unconditional, that means it's up to God. But if we go with the classic Calvinism, he unconditionally elects and irresistibly graces people into Christ, but he doesn't do it for everybody. He does it for some, and leaves others to their own destiny, which is eternal damnation. Now, that is not a good system. So my question is, can we translate unconditional grace to universal grace and therefore to universal salvation? That's the shocker. And I hope you'll get last night's message to clarify what I'm talking about when I talk about that. So God elicits faith. Not by coercive force, but by the power of infinite persuasiveness. And this goes along with what Jesus Christ said. We'll skip the prayer. We'll pray at the end. What Jesus Christ said in John 16, 7 through 11, when he sends the spirit, the spirit will persuade the world of sin because they don't believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my father, of judgment because the prince of this world has been judged. And so it's the persuasiveness of the Holy Spirit, the infinite persuasiveness, which is a kind of irresistible grace to use the I in Calvin's tulip. And so let's look at now Galatians chapter three. Paul said, I want to learn one thing from you. This kind of takes up where I left off last March, the last message I preached to you which came from a depth at least 38 years deep. I want to learn one thing from you. Paul is asking them literally in the, the parsing of the verbs here, I'm, I want you to teach me one thing. I've been teaching you. I taught you before. Now teachers are teaching you. They're misguiding you. They're Jewish Christian teachers on a mission different from mine, and I'm showing you that their mission will lead you away from Christ. I want to learn one thing from you. You defectors in these three Galatian churches, you teach me for a change. I'm your disciple. Did you receive the spirit by doing works of the law? The word is ex ergon in the Greek, ex ergon namu. Or by the message that elicits faith. 
That's the translation that should be adopted here. Or by the message that elicits faith. Ex akoes pistios is the word. Not ex ergon namu, works of the law, but ex akoes pistios. I think it can also be translated as the message of faithfulness or the message of Messiah's faithfulness. When that message is proclaimed and the gospel is what it is, which is God's integrity through Christ's fidelity and God's integrity is love, then you get faith elicited because the Holy Spirit endorses that message. The Holy Spirit endorses Paul's gospel. So when did these Galatians receive the Spirit? They received the Spirit on the occasion of the proclamation of the message that is about Messiah's faithfulness. It's a message that elicits faith. The preaching of the gospel is an event in itself. It's an event. Just as the cross, we call the the cross, Paul called it the cross in Galatians. He never mentioned the cross In Romans, per se, he called it different things, the death of Christ, the handing over of him for our sins, and the resurrection of him for our justification, and those possessive pronouns refer to all people, our justification. But the cross is an event that includes the obedience of Jesus Christ to the extent of death, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his elevation, and his present enthronement at the right hand of the Father, from which he rules and will rule until all his enemies are under his feet, including death. And that means death for everyone under Christ's feet. So the preaching of the gospel is an event also. It is like the Christ event itself in that it kind of reproduces that event to the ears and before the eyes of the beholders. Remember Galatians 3.1, which we'll hit again in a moment. Before whose eyes Christ was portrayed as having been crucified. The preaching of the gospel then is an event in itself. It is like the Christ event. At the Christ event, a Roman centurion, the one who was responsible with others for crucifying Jesus Christ because it was their duty under Pilate's command, under the pseudo-Jews' insistence, the Roman centurion looked up at the crucified Christ and said, truly, this man is the Son of God. Christ crucified before his eyes elicited that faith. It wasn't a requirement that he needed to do before he got saved. It was something elicited from that event. When the gospel is proclaimed, it's presenting the crucified Christ in such a way that like the centurion, it elicits faith. I saw this happen. I saw this happen recently. I've preached to people for years or at least suggested for years about the gospel and then left the occasion to them to believe, but they never could believe. They couldn't ever get it together to believe until I explained At the same time, this time, it's the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and the person believed. The the gospel rightly proclaimed is endorsed by the Spirit, and he persuades and he elicits faith. That's when people are shifted from Adam into Christ. The preaching of the gospel, then, is an event in itself. It is like the Christ event in that it presents this event to the ears Romans 10, 17, and before the eyes of the beholders, before the ears of the hearers and the eyes of the beholders, the eyes of the heart, as Galatians 3, 1 says. A man named L.E. Keck, K-E-C-K, wrote in his introduction to Mark's gospel in 1966, cited by Lou Martin in 447. He defined the gospel as, quote, listen to this carefully, He defined the gospel as news of victory that puts victory into effect. It's news of victory that puts victory into effect. Paul got it when he said, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The gospel actually announces the victory of Christ, which becomes effective in the hearers. And so... 
I think Keck was right. I think I wrote this down in my notebook when I read this. It's one of those things that got five stars next to it. News of victory that puts victory into effect. It is the power of salvation to all who believe, that is, to all who hear it as it elicits faith. To the Jew first, and that's from Psalm 98, God works in the midst of Israel so that all the nations will see and see Yahweh's act in Christ, as Brian's messages made very clear. Psalm 98, the Jew first, and also to the Greek, which is the rest of the nations. Romans 10, 17, again, I want to incite this, or recite this translation again. Faith comes about, or we could say it's incited, ignited, elicited, or kindled. Any of those words work pretty good. Created is too strong. Produced is too strong. Incited, ignited, elicited, or kindled. Faith comes about, that is, is incited by the report. And the report is akoe, and that's the gospel. And by the report is meant the message about Christ. When the message includes his faithfulness as the source and the means of justification, it elicits faith. It doesn't leave you halfway and say, you must believe. And the poor person who's an empiricist can't empirically determine whether it's right or not. The person who's rationalistic can't determine whether it's tr- the facts of the gospel are right or not. But when the gospel is presented in its totality with the emphasis on Christ's fidelity, there is an eliciting of faith. See, this is what I'm doing. What am I doing here? I'm preparing you for the work of the ministry. And the ministry is the ministry of reconciliation. The pastors, teachers, apostles, prophets, evangelists, the whole spectrum of communicative gifts in the church age are for the perfecting of the saints. The perfecting of the saints means their perfection or maturation in love because our whole responsibility as a community, an addressable community under the Holy Spirit is in one sentence. You will love your neighbor as yourself. That one sentence of the law that summarizes the whole law has been fulfilled in God's act in Christ. And that one responsibility is our only responsibility. And we'll be hitting that again. That's Galatians 5.14 all the way up through 23. So, and we'll also be interpreting that passage that's so difficult for people in Galatians 5, 19 to 21, and what Paul means by not inheriting the kingdom of God, and it has to do not with individuals, but with communities under the flesh or under the spirit. We'll get into that, and I think you'll be encouraged by that interpretation, because it does not involve divine retribution, much to the disappointment of the fundies. Faith comes about by the report. In other words, the report, which is the gospel, taken from Isaiah 53, who used the same word, akoe, in the Septuagint translation, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. He's in awe because given their own ability, nobody believes the report. The report itself must elicit faith. That same chapter, I think, is one of the most revelatory things I've discovered is Isaiah 53, 11, in which God says, through his enduring of suffering, through his passion, we could say, my righteous servant will justify many. My righteous servant will justify many. Paul interprets that many in Isaiah 53, 11, as all in Romans 5, 18. And justify there means deliver so again in Romans ten seventeen, faith comes about by the report it's elicited by the gospel itself and by the report is meant the message about Christ so I want this to be established in your soul faith is elicited by the gospel the gospel of Jesus Christ is like the promise spoken to Abraham And to his seed, Christ, that all the Gentiles would be blessed in him. Do you realize that when Paul says the gospel was preached in advance to Abraham, that it was a universal gospel? 
because the gospel was this. It was a promise of blessing to Abraham and to his seed, which is Christ, in whom all the nations will be blessed. The gospel includes the promise that all the nations will be blessed, not in Abraham, but in Abraham's seed. Paul brings up Abraham in Galatians 3, and we have to go there first before you go to Romans 4 to understand it. He brings up Abraham because the teachers brought up Abraham. And they took Genesis 17, 8 and says, see, there was a pact between Abraham and God, and it was circumcision. And Paul says, well, let me take you back deeper into the history of Abraham in Genesis 15, 6, when he heard the gospel. And he didn't put his faith in Christ. He simply believed God. The promise that all the nations would be blessed in Abraham's seed elicited faith in Abraham. And the the promise is like the gospel. The gospel, in fact, is the promise that God spoke to Abraham. It elicited faith in Abraham. And that happened 13 years before he ever was circumcised. And then Paul took it to another level when he said in Galatians 3, he says the law was added 430 years after the promise was spoken. And then he used a very tricky term called Will and testament. There he defines not the covenant as we know, divine covenant, but a last will and testament. Paul says the, the law can no more disannul the promise that God made to Abraham and to his seed, and his seed is Christ, and in Christ all will be made alive. That's the gospel. The law that was given 430 years later cannot disannul the promise that God made to Abraham any more than a codicil added to a last will and testament can nullify the last will and testament and the inheritance that comes through the testator's will. That's something we'll come up with later. We'll, I'm just showing you that Paul exegetes the narrative of Abraham in Genesis because his te- the teachers that are taking people away from the gospel are doing the same thing. But Paul exegetes that passage in Genesis 15 through 22, not to exemplify Abraham, but to manifest Jesus Christ, his seed. Paul exegetes the narrative of Abraham in Genesis in order to take the attention away from Abraham. That's the same tactic that the Hebrew writer, the Hebrews sermon uses in Hebrews 11. Let's consider those who received approval from God for their faith, faith which is always elicited. Noah hears God. He, the message from God elicits faith. Abraham hears God. The message from God elicits faith. Moses hears God. The message from God elicits faith. And all the way through. But then at the end it says, now let us look away from. Aphorao. Aphorao. Let us look away from all of these exemplars unto Jesus who is the author and perfecter of faith. The author and perfecter of faith. Not our faith, but faith, period. He's the author of it. He is the perfecter of it, and he perfects it in us. So the attention is drawn, aparao, aparao, away from all these so-called faith heroes from Abel through David, through Samson, through the martyrs during the time of the Maccabees, all the way up to the New Testament times. But let us turn away from them unto Jesus. And that's what Paul does in Romans 4. He exegetes about Abraham to focus attention on his seed. And the seed is Christ. In Christ, therefore, all the nations will be blessed. Your seed, Abraham, is Messiah. It's Christ. Singular, Galatians 3.16. In Christ, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's the gospel. It elicited faith in Abraham 13 years before he entered into circumcision. And just as... The promise was uttered to Abraham 430 years before the law was given. So in neither case was the law capable of nullifying the promise. The promise is the gospel. So then, Abraham's faith was elicited by the promise of God, and the entrance of the law did nothing to nullify the promise made to Abraham and to his seed. 
Once again, Paul exegetes the narrative of Abraham in Genesis in order to take the attention away from Abraham and put it on Christ and his atoning death and saving resurrection. Romans 4 ends with Christ being handed over for our sins and resurrected for our justification. And those two possessive pronouns, plural possessives, our, refers arguably to all the human race, not just to Christians. Because he is the propitiation not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. Therefore, his resurrection is not for our justification only, but for the justification of all humankind. And that's verified in Romans 5.18. I'm making a bridge. This is the hardest bridge I've ever had to build because I can't get help from Campbell. I can't get help from the scholars I've been reading. This is something God the Holy Spirit has put before me, and I've kind of resisted it. I said, I don't know if I really want to do that. And he says, well, then do you just want to traffic in the findings of other men? And I said, no, let's go. Let's rock. And that means lead me to the rock that is higher than I. We can always function in the best of Adam, or we can be led to the rock that is higher than I, which is a harder way to go, but a better way to go. In Galatians 3, Paul exegetes the story of Abraham that was used by the teachers to promote membership in Israel and therefore identity in Abraham by circumcision. That's Genesis 17.8. They used Abraham's act of circumcision in Genesis 17.8 salvifically, and that's not even according to true Judaism. Paul doesn't have a bone to pick with Judaism. Judaism never said that the law had a salvific effect. It, it, it agreed in Psalm 143, too, that no one can be justified, Paul said, by the works of the law. So these teachers weren't classic people that, that are Judaism. In Judaism, they weren't also classic Christians either. They were out of the realm of both realities. Judaism was never attacked by Paul. And it's one of the reasons that people have stumbled over the gospel because they assume by certain commentaries that he was doing that. Paul exegetes the narrative of Abraham in order to take the attention away from Abraham and put it on Christ. The teachers used Abraham's act of circumcision, but Paul went deeper into Abraham's past where the unconditional promise of God to Abraham and to his seed elicited Abraham's trust in God. So God's promise elicited the faith of Abraham 13 years before he was circumcised. Paul does something very similar with the teacher's insistence on keeping the law by predating the law by the promise given 430 years earlier that was not and could not be annulled by the law. Giving the example of a codicil, that's C-O-D-I-C-I-L, being added to a last will and testament, not having the power to annul that will or that intention of the testator. Paul then exegetes the story of Abraham in Genesis 16 to 21, and I think it even goes into 22, to draw the attention away from Abraham to his seed. And so the teachers are saying, you can be the children of Abraham. Paul is saying, no, you're the children of God. You're the children of the of God because of you are in the seed and the seed is the son Jesus Christ all these things will be ironed out don't worry I'm just exploding forth with a few things that need to be said prophetically so we already have the Galatians are already the sons of God Paul says in Galatians 3:26, and are already the eschatological Israel of God according to Hosea 1:10 or 2-1, depending on the manuscript. The Galatian saints, as well as the Roman saints, then can be called believers, they that believe. But they believe as a result of a faith that's elicited by the gospel message. They are justified not by their faith, but by the faithfulness of Jesus. By so much, they are like Abraham, whose faith was in God, and it was elicited by the previously made promise of God. Faith does not elicit a response from God in which he justifies the individual who believes. Faith comes by the gospel 
It is elicited by the gospel, which announces our salvation by Christ's fidelity. Now, let's call this third gear. Early on in this series, I spoke of a dialectic of contradictories. It's evident in Romans. It's also as evident in Galatians. The dialectic of contradictories involves an antinomy or a a direct opposition between two messages. Each one is called good news by its preacher. The Jewish Christian teachers called their nomistic or law gospel good news. Good news, you can be part of Israel through circumcision and following the law. Paul's gospel was directly in opposition to theirs and called truly good news. Intricately involved in this dialectic is the antinomy of justification. We'll just use the word, even though it's not the real best translation of it. By the human performance of the works of the law against justification by the fidelity of Messiah Jesus. These are two gospels that are coming forth today and even t- today with the idea of justification by faith, which leaves an open question just how involved Jesus Christ is in our salvation and how involved human faith is. Paul does not set up an antinomy of justification by the humanly performed works of the law versus justification by the humanly performed act of faith. At this point, it's profitable to quote Mr. Martin, Lou Martin, from his commentary, which I finished the Saturday after I returned, after reading it all for a month in Florida. On his commentary on Galatians, Lou Martin says, quote, When Paul reworked the exegetical argument of Galatians 3, in order to use it in Romans 4, please notice that, in order to use it in Romans 4, that's the reason why I wasn't able to go to Romans 4, because I got to go to Galatians 3 first. He gave detailed attention to God's act of recognition, Romans 4.3, that is recognition of Abraham's faithfulness. He also explicated or explained Galatians 3.2 and 3.5, showing very clearly that the fundamental antinomy is not human faith versus human observance of the law. In Romans 4, the fundamental antinomy is God's act of presuppositionless grace. Presuppositionless is another word for unconditional grace. Versus an act one might imagine God to have taken because he recognized himself to be indebted to human beings for something they had done. That's not the gospel. It's not God recognizing that he's indebted to an individual who woke up one morning and said, Today, on my list, I'm going to dress, I'm going to work out, I'm going to go grocery shopping, and I'm going to believe the gospel. That's not how it works. And then, when I believe the gospel, God will be indebted to justify me. No, that's not how it works. It should be understood that the human act of believing is not being altogether discounted by this antinomy. What is being taught is that the source of our salvation And if you want, our justification, or what Lou Martin calls rectification, a setting right, is not the human act of believing. The source of our justification is not the human act of believing. The human act of faith is kindled, elicited, or prompted by the gospel itself during the transition in which a person is placed into Christ. After this, that which we might call the divinely approved Christian spiritual life, which is a higher integration of human living, is a participation in Messiah's faithfulness, empowered by the Spirit, not by adherence to the works of the law or to humanly accomplished deeds and observance of Torah, even if they are supposedly aided by God's Spirit. So in any exegesis of Romans 4, and this again is laying this structure for a future exegesis of Romans In any exegesis of Romans 4, a look first at Galatians 3 is helpful because A, Galatians was written before Romans, and B, Romans 4 is a fuller development of an argument that Paul had already presented in Galatians. So let's illustrate this. Are you in Galatians 3? Stay there. Let's go back to 1, verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? With the evil eye. 
you before whose eyes. There's a definite play on words here that's not captured by most English translations. That's why I translated that word for bewitched as bewitching with the evil eye by attracting your attention elsewhere other than the cross of Christ. In other words, he says, you are, you've been hypnotized. You've been mesmerized by a magician who has with the evil eye distracted your eye from Christ and him crucified as the source and means of your justification to your own works. So he said, Oh foolish Galatians who has bewitched you with the evil eye you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was portrayed as bearing the marks of crucifixion. It's not so much that Paul portrayed the brutality of the cross like preachers do every Good Friday ad nauseum. It was him presenting Jesus Christ with the scars of having been crucified and resurrected. And therefore, it is a crucified Messiah having been crucified. So Paul is asking, did this practitioner of magic, which was the leader of the teachers that were dissuading them from from grace, did he put a spell on them so that they forgot that the source... And the foundation and the means of their salvation was the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Messiah. And the answer is yes, that's exactly what happened. So I want to learn this one thing from you, he says. that. See, this is how it follows. I want to learn this one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, from doing the works of the law as a source or from the gospel which incites faith? You can't be that foolish, can you? We say, you're not that stupid, are you? Having begun in the spirit, are you now being completed by the flesh? Did you experience, and the word here is pasco, which usually means to suffer, but it means here to experience. Did you experience such remarkable things in vain? Paul accomplished many miracles while he was with them by the Holy Spirit. So he says in verse 5, did he who supplies the spirit to you and he who performs miracles among you do it in response to your doing works in observance of the law or by the message that elicits faith? The answer is obvious. It's the message that elicits faith. Then Martin's translation in verse 6 is very telling. Listen carefully to it because the English doesn't capture it. Things were the same, he says, with Abraham as they were with you Galatians. He trusted God. And as the final act in the drama by which God set Abraham fully right, God recognized Abraham's faithful trust. In other words, we could say God recognizes faithful trust, which is a participation in Messiah's own faithfulness to be the approved spiritual life. That's the approved spiritual life it begins with a faith that's elicited by the holy spirit and carried along into faith hope and love as the spiritual life a similar sense obtains in galatians 2:16 where paul says to peter and to the teachers for that matter the jewish christians jews who believed in jesus christ he said we believed in jesus christ and that was so that to indicate that the source of our justification or salvation was the faithfulness of Christ. He's the righteous one. Or we could say that our, the source of our salvation is by his faithful death or the blood of Christ or the obedience of Christ or the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ. So I said we should change the slogan, faith alone in Christ alone, to simply Christ alone. Christus Solus Christus, says the Latin. Solus Christus. Or as Mike Bova used to say, it's all Christ. And he's right. There's a prophet walking around here saying that. So, some of you remember him, some don't. I've had to tame him a few times because he used to jump right out of his seat in the front row and it would distract me. I'd like, whoa. I said, Mike, please sit down. But he's with the Lord now, seated at the Lord's, in the Lord's presence. So in Galatians 2.16, Paul reasoning says, we too believed in Jesus Christ, but it was with a view to our justification being the result of Christ's own faithfulness. 
In other words, they, receive, they believe Jesus Christ upon seeing or understanding that it was his faithfulness by which they were saved. When Paul on the road to Damascus saw the Lord Jesus Christ, he saw him as having been crucified. He didn't see him on the cross, but he saw the marks of crucifixion, and he recognized right there that the source and the means of his deliverance was Jesus Christ. And so Paul said, no foundation can be laid than that which is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Not your faith, Jesus Christ, who is one with his own faithfulness. For as Galatians 3 teaches, read it yourself. Read Galatians 3 throughout. You'll find that the coming of Christ, his incarnation, burial, or death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, the coming of Christ is the same as the coming of faithfulness into the world. The coming of faithfulness into the world. The coming of a justifying faithfulness into the world came when Christ came into the world. He is equated with his own faithfulness. And that's the basis of our deliverance. Neither is God obligated, therefore, to reward faith with salvation. God is not obligated to reward human faith with salvation. God does not recognize circumcision and subsequent observance of the regulations of Torah as such a sign. Abraham's act of faith is just like the act of faith by the Galatians and by Paul himself and Peter. It was, listen carefully, incited, I-N-C-I-T-E-D, by a prior act of God. Namely, the promise. The antinomy here then is not between two two human acts. One of a, a human act of faith, the other a human act of obedience to Torah. It is between a human act and a divine act enacted in Christ. That's the real antinomy. So William Law was correct in saying, if one man depends upon his faith and another man depends upon his works, then the faith of the one and the works of the other are equally the same filthy rags. To make faith into a work that needs to be rewarded by God is not the gospel. And it leaves the hearers of that gospel in a quandary. I believe, but I don't know if my belief is enough. I believe, but is it enough? Am I sincere in my faith? Am I believing? And if I backslide, it's because I didn't really believe enough or I didn't do this enough. But when you make the issue the fidelity of Christ, that faith is always enough. And you are given an assurance with that faith. That faith is an assurance. So the antinomy here is not between two human acts, as is interpreted by the Reformation, much of the Reformation theology. It's between a human act and a divine act enacted in Christ. Now listen carefully, because I'm coming up to a question that I'm going to leave you with, and then maybe begin to answer it on Sunday. Paul's exegetical treatment of Abraham in Galatians 3 and Romans 3, 21 to 31 as a lead-in to Romans 4. Paul's exegesis regarding Abraham is to show that prior to Abraham's faith was the promise of God that elicited that faith and which elicited He then kept empowering Abraham's faithfulness by which God eventually received glory. Even the faithfulness of Abraham up to the point of offering his son Isaac by which he received back from God. That was a full maturation of Abraham's spiritual life. It was related instead, therefore, to God's will and power. Let me say this again. Abraham's faith by which God received glory, means that God's promise was related not to a response to a human act on the part of Abraham. It was related instead, as Romans 4.17 says, to God's will and power to create life and to call into existence things that do not exist. The issue in the gospel is God's will and God's power to create life and to call into existence things that do not exist. Romans 4.17 compared with Galatians 3.21. Remember Ephesians 2.5, a letter to the Laodiceans. While you were dead in sins, God made you alive with 
Christ. So what is our salvation? It's an enactment by God in which we who were dead in sins were made alive in Christ. So that we are saved by God's presupposition, presuppositionless or unconditional grace, which is not a response to the faith of a spiritually dead person. If there's any response at all from a dead person. It's a divine response to Jesus Christ's fidelity on our behalf. Our salvation is a divine response to Jesus Christ's fidelity on our behalf. The law came through Moses. It's true. Grace and truth, which is the covenant fidelity of Christ to the point of fulfillment, came by Jesus Christ. From his fullness, which is his own covenant fidelity, we have all received even grace after grace. So here's the question. The faithfulness of Messiah Jesus is both the source and the means of our salvation. Or if you want, for purposes of ease of teaching, our justification. So the great question that I have before me that I can't answer through my study of all these other scholars is, can we build a bridge between the unconditional grace of God to a universal grace of God? Can we conclude that if God's grace is unconditional, that it must be universal in the ultimate sense. Word it another way. Let me word it another way. If God saves as a result of his unconditional grace, does he only save some as a result of his unconditional grace? Or does he save all based on the presuppositionless grace through the grace or the fidelity of the one man, Jesus Christ? Now, if he does not save, here's some logic for you, and maybe even some rhetoric. If he does not save all based on this sheer grace, then we're back to a radically inadequate Calvinism, a radically inadequate Calvinism of double election or double predestination which says that some are elected to salvation and are saved by irresistible grace, which is another word for unconditional grace, through their unconditional election, while others are predestined to damnation. Or if you're an infralapsarian, like I used to be, you're not damned by, but you're simply left to the destiny of damnation, which is the same thing. There are very strong hints that this bridge from unconditionality to universality has already been built in Paul's epistles. In other words, we haven't even dealt primarily with the very declarations that Paul made in which he explicitly states that God's mercy will be toward all and to all. And so I haven't even hit those yet, so the the strength of this argument hasn't even come forward yet in Better Call Paul. Let me give you an example, and I'll close. There are very strong hints that this bridge from unconditional grace to universal grace has already been built by Paul in his epistles. Perhaps most notably, read these passages on your own if you want. Romans 4.25 through 5.18. We've dabbled a little bit there. Romans 11.32, which occasioned Paul's great doxology, his wondrous, rapturous worship of God because God shut up all in disobedience in order to have mercy upon all. Romans 11.32, as well as the great final eschatology, which we have yet to really fully hit. I've referred to it probably a hundred times in Revelation, especially with Romelli's help from the patristic theologians especially the Cappadocians, those were some sharp theologians. They were the sharpest knives in the drawer of scholars up to our time. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-two to 28, ending up with God being all in all, of course, anchored to Psalm 110.1, in which all the enemies of God will be under the feet of Messiah, to say nothing of the combination of 1 Corinthians 12.3, no man can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And combine that, Romans 12, 3, with Philippians 2, 9 to 11, when the scripture says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess 
that Jesus is Lord or that the Lord is Jesus. How can that happen if not by the Holy Spirit? So it isn't the coerced confession of enemies that Jesus is Lord after which they're thrown into hell. It is a Holy Spirit aided confession by every mouth. And so unconditional grace seems to be universal here. The bridge is being built. The bridge is being built. It's not built all the way across, so don't even walk across it yet, but it's coming. On top of this, there is Paul's significantly placed reference to the mystery of God's intention, which received very little attention, even in divine deliverance, in God, the deliverance of God by Douglas Campbell. And in fact, a lot of these scholars don't want to deal with the mystery of God, but the mystery of God's intent is to recapitulate everything in Christ Jesus, all things, tapanta, the universal creation and universally humanity, to summarize them in Christ. And that's God's, the mystery of God's intent. Found in an epistle called Ephesians, which was written as a pristine account of Christian salvation without having to deal with false teachers, although it foresaw that there would be deceitful workers coming among them. It it always happens. It happens here. It will happen here again. Deceitful workers sneaking around and trying to dissuade. But Paul is presenting the gospel in a way that is just a pristine account of it without having to deal with a lot of problems. And he starts off by saying the mystery of God's intention is to recapitulate everything in Jesus Christ. And you guys are among the first fruits of those who first hoped in Messiah and were sealed by the Holy Spirit, etc., etc. So we have Ephesians 1, 9 to 11, the mystery of God's intention and determination to recapitulate everything in Christ Jesus, coupled with the immeasurable impact of the peace that was made by the blood of the cross of the Son of God's love in Colossians 1.20, which reaches to the reconciliation, reaching even to superhuman angelic principalities and powers. So this all-inclusive reconciliation also finds a mate in 2 Corinthians 5.19, where Paul plainly proclaims that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And these can be combined with declarations in the so-called pastoral epistles, like 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 6. God is not willing that any should perish in 2 Peter 3, 8, 9. I'm going to get the Peter connection maybe even together on Sunday. I don't know. 1 Timothy 2, 4, God our Savior, the will of God our Savior is that all men be saved and come to an epignosis, a superior knowledge of Christ Jesus, of the truth, and Jesus Christ is the only mediator between God and all of humankind, and he gave himself as a ransom for all. And in Titus 2.11, the grace of God is manifested, the gospel of God is manifested in this, salvation for all mankind. So you see, I think we've got some pretty strong impetus, or we have very strong momentum in constructing this bridge. And if we do so, we will in turn gone quite a ways to answering the thesis question of this series called Better Call Paul. Paul's epistles, we can say, I think, and it's shaping up, in toto, do present an apocalypse of Jesus Christ like the book of Revelation does, but it presents, as the book of Revelation does, and as we saw clearly, an apocalypse of Jesus Christ in his universally saving significance. Someone will say, how then are we supposed to live? We're supposed to live in the light of this vision. There is no spiritual life unless there is a vision of the universal saving significant savior, because that is the impetus and the momentum to live in that light of that message. Because without that vision, the people, God's people, are perishing. They're remaining in the Adamic ontology, trying to reconfigure the best of Adam, like Saul, not Paul, but Saul. You want to call Saul? Call Saul. Saul was the one who was told to slaughter all the sheep and all the Amalekites, but he preserved the king, Agag, and he preserved the best of the sheep. And then told Samuel the prophet, I've killed all the sheep. And, and Samuel says, well, what's that bleating I hear? In the, what's that I hear? And he spared Agag. So 
Samuel, the prophet, went and finished the job. You know what that's illustrating to us? It is for our instruction. It says, don't try to preserve the best of Adam, the king of the Amalekites, and the best of the sheep with the intention of offering them in sacrifice to God. Because Samuel said, here's a basic lesson to you, Saul. God doesn't want sacrifice. He wants obedience. And it's the obedience of faith to which we are called in Christ, which is a participation in Christ's own fidelity. He doesn't want to reconfigure the Adamic ontology into something that looks pleasing to God. Rather, the Adamic ontology is crucified. It is put off. The old man is put off. The new man is put on. And the new man that's put on is Christ. So therefore, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and give no more reservations to the flesh. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh, which means stop trying to reconfigure Adam and the best of the Adamic ontology, because that, my friends, is perishing. Don't let anyone mesmerize you with an evil eye to distract your attention from a crucified Messiah, because then you'll begin to assume that your justification is rooted in something other than Jesus Christ, the only foundation. Thank you, Father, for this encouragement. Thank you for this bridge that you're beginning to construct because it's way past what I can do. It's way past. It's too high for me. It's too far for me beyond my capability. But I know that you are constructing a bridge from the unconditional election and the grace, the unconditional grace to what is a universal grace because we are seeing in Paul's epistles and it's coming into focus an apocalypse of Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God who has taken away the sin of the world. Thank you for the privilege that we have now presenting an